Cambridge University, I settled on the history of art, although I was soon chafing at the assumption underlying the whole syllabus that nothing of lasting quality or interest had been achieved in art since Raphael, or at most Rubens, to both of whom I developed a distinct allergy that lasted for years. But this was the early sixties, and although we students had been corralled into the Renaissance and told to consider it the unsurpassable peak of human achievement, we were aware that minor as it seemed beside the thriving music scene, a modern art world existed out there beyond the faculty walls. Progressively disenchanted with my professor, himself the world expert on Rubens, I was determined to get to know more about what was happening in contemporary art, living art, as I thought of it, driven more by an impulse to challenge entrenched attitudes, it has to be said, than to explore the new. At the same time, having failed to get a short story published in the literary review Granta, where I so feared rejection that I sent my text in anonymously, I found some solace in another student magazine called Cambridge Opinion. What set this august-looking publication apart was that although produced by undergraduates, it devoted each issue to a particular theme, usually of a scientific or political nature, and invited the acknowledged specialists in that field to contribute their expert views. This editorial method worked well enough for a number of years, but the magazine had recently fallen on hard times and run up debts with the printers, who decided they no longer wanted to be part of such a risky venture. With the confidence of youth and total inexperience, I persuaded the printers that only by continuing publication could they hope to recoup even part of the outstanding sum. Then to bolster the impression that the magazine might actually become financially viable, I grandly recruited a staff of other students, appointing two of them to bring in whatever paid advertising they could find. As for the theme of my first issue, there had never been any doubt. Cambridge opinion had barely touched on the arts in any shape or form, at least not in the handful of past issues that had come my way. This only convinced me further that I was on the right track, preferring to see my choice as a way of extending the magazine's scope rather than cocking a snook at the hidebound art history course I was about to quit. The revived magazine would, of course, focus on the then rarely discussed, indeed virtually unheard of, theme of modern art in Britain. It was only once I had proudly announced my new role as editor to everyone I knew and basked for a moment in the unspecified importance it appeared to confer that I realised with a jolt I had no idea how or where to start on my first issue. Although I had gone to the odd exhibition at the Fitzwilliam Museum and had even seen the modest 20th century collection at Jim Ede's open house in Kettle's Yard, My understanding of what constituted the modern, whether in Britain or anywhere else, stopped at a few billowing forms with holes in them, the stuff of newspaper cartoons, which usually mocked 
the foolish pretentiousness of it all. Brought up in a house that had no pictures of interest on the wall, my first-hand experience of contemporary image-making was limited to the watercolours that my father produced during family holidays on the beach in Suffolk. Although I would never have admitted it later, as a small boy, I was entranced by the ease with which he would pencil in random V's to evoke gulls hovering over a still aptly wet sea. And the more adventurous of these seascapes were eventually framed and displayed at home until one day there must have been an abrupt change of mood since they were taken down to a cupboard where my father kept relics of other abandoned pursuits, including a forlorn bag bristling with golf clubs. Then David Blow, a friend at Trinity Hall...